And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Jacanetti. We've got a very special episode for you this time. This is our third Gaiden episode. Gaiden, of course, meeting side story. And in this instance, we're taking uh, the Gaiden approach because we don't have any giant monsters this time out. But this is definitely a film which should be of interest to fans of this show and of Japanese giant monsters in general. We're going to be taking a look at the nearly legendary lost Toho film, Prophecies of Nostradamus. And we're going to get right into it right now. Prophecies of Nostradamus was released by Toho in 1974 in Japan. It is directed by Toshio Masuda. Uh, writing credits were Toshio Yasumi, Yoshimitsu Bano, who you might remember as the writer and director of Godzilla vs. a Smog Monster, and Tsutomo Goto. Uh, music was by Isayo Tomita. Uh, the director of special effects was Turyoshi Nakano, assistant director of special effects Koichi Kawakita, and produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka and Osumu Tanaka. Our story centers on the Nishiyama family, who are the descendants of the man who first brought Nostradamus' prophecies to Japan back during feudal times. We then cut to the year 1999, where Nostradamus predicted the world would end. The head of the family is now Dr. Ryogen Nishiyama, a medical doctor who does side work as an anti-pollution activist. His daughter Mariko is dating photographer Akira Nakagawa, just returned from a trip in Africa where he recorded the terrible conditions and starvation there. Ryogen's wife, Nobu, is one of the many living in the industrial parts of Japan, suffering from strange ailments of the lungs and circulatory system. While Dr. Nishiyama tries to educate the government and the public of their coming doom, various disasters strike the world. Flocks of birds and schools of fish mysteriously die. Children are born with crippling birth defects at alarming rates. Giant slugs, mutated by some unknown cause, create panic in Japan but are quickly covered up by the government. All the while, Dr. Nishiyama tries in vain to get the government to change its ways. An expedition is dispatched to New Guinea to investigate a strange radioactive dust cloud which has settled there. When that expedition is lost, a second one, including Dr. Nishiyama, is dispatched. The trip into the jungle becomes a horror show. The radiation has ravaged the foliage, mutated bats into giant, bloodthirsty beasts, and transformed leeches into swamp monsters. Worst of all is the original expedition, driven insane by the radiation and turned into violent cannibals. Shaken, Nishiyama redoubles his efforts to stop the coming apocalypse. Mariko is now pregnant with Akira's child as well, and they both hope for the future, but the disasters keep happening. Changing weather patterns across the world lead to drought in some areas and flooding in others, even snow in the African desert. A Concord SST explodes in the sky over Japan, tearing a hole in the ozone layer, causing severe ultraviolet burns on those below. Another SST explodes over the Arctic Circle, causing massive amounts of polar ice to melt and flood Japan. 
pushed to the brink, the Japanese government begins to ration food, causing riots in the streets. Things continue to get even worse as the air pollution being poured out of the factories reaches a tipping point and becomes so utterly choked with particulate matter that it transforms the sky above Tokyo into a reflex mirror reflecting the city below. Panic ensues with thousands trying to flee the cities, leading to pileups and massive explosions on the highways. Young people, disillusioned with the world which has been taken from them, begin to perform ritualistic mass suicides. Dr. Nishiyama, despite his efforts, cannot save the life of his wife, and Nobu dies in his arms at their home. Even more determined, he addresses the Prime Minister and members of the Diet with grave warnings. These disasters are only the beginning. Unless the world changes its ways, it will be destroyed, perhaps through violent volcanic eruptions wiping out the entire planet, or through thermonuclear war between the nations. The latter scenario shows us the Earth as a burnt-out husk with the hideous, radiation-addled survivors battling over the meager scraps of food available. Having given their final message, Dr. Nishiyama, Mariko, and Akira walk away from the diet down the deserted streets of Tokyo, having done all they can do to open the eyes of the world to the fate they are hurtling towards. Yeah, this is a very odd, odd movie. That's about the only real word you can use to describe a lot of the, this movie. Uh, this was made in, as I said, 1974. We were hip-deep in the uh, beginnings of what is now known as the Green Movement, the Environmentalist Movement, in the industrialized nations of the world, including Japan, were a couple of years on the heels of Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, which tackled a lot of similar issues involving industrial pollution. But at the same time, you also have to remember is that uh, this was part of the disaster movie cycle, and Toho had had success with the disaster movie cycle already with Submersion of Japan. Um, so they want the disaster movies were making them money, so they wanted to keep it going, and so they produced this type, this film, which is kind of the beyond the pale, throw everything you can in there type of disaster movie, and uh, it, it it works and it doesn't work at the same time, which is an odd thing to say. But let's get into the notes. I didn't say that one of the things that's odd about this is that it starts out with a narrative about the family, but essentially the narrative goes away after the New Guinea expedition, and the film becomes a series of disaster set pieces. Even the Nostradamus part goes away at that point. I mean, it pops up every now and again when we're watching a disaster. There'll be a voiceover reading a uh, quatrain from Nostradamus's prophecies. But at that point, it becomes more of a framing device than anything else, as we're just subjected to a, you know, effect sequence after effect sequence after effect sequence. Said disasters, they're generally shot in such a way to be as cruel as possible. A good example is the highway explosion scene where we see uh, cars exploding down the highway. And, of course, it's cut with a shot of a family in the car with the babies crying because, you know, we have to kill infants off. We want to sell just how horrible this is. Another good example is when they have the massive floods throughout Japan. Uh, we see the rivers rising up over their banks and flooding out the countryside. Of course, we have to cut to a shot of family eating supper before water washes them away. Uh, the UV radiation scene is another one. We see it burning a family. And, you know, to see everybody just huddling on the ground, be, you know, being scalded like bugs underneath a magnifying glass. And, of course, the whole uh, subplot about babies being born with severe birth defects leads to a very, very uh, heart-wrenching scene, which I'll discuss in a little bit, uh, involving, again, this type of very cruelty, kind of driving home this, this attitude, this very cynical 70s attitude. Uh, 
I, I mentioned the talking about the, the baby's more severe birth defects. This is one of the subtle scenes in this film that sometimes can be more effective than kind of the over-the-top disaster scenes. Uh, Dr. Nishiyama has an associate that he works with at his office who is expecting his first grandchild, and he's very excited, and we see him early on in the story talking to uh, Dr. Nishiyama that he might need to work more to make more money, and Nishiyama's going to help him out. And then we go to the hospital, and the baby is born, and it's, it's not... We don't ever see the infant, which is a good move, because what our mind's eye creates for uh, from the description is a million times worse, probably. One of those types of cases. And, you know, his associate describes this, this, you know, poor baby being born in such hideous terms, saying it was only alive for a short time, but it wasn't human. The performances, both of Mishiyama and his associate, are very heart-wrenching. Like I said, it's very hard to watch that scene. Uh, but it's very effective, you know, and, and it drives home this idea of the world kind of tearing itself apart on all sides. A bit less effective but still subtle and well done are the scenes of the, the flocks of birds simply falling from the sky or the piles and piles of fish piled up on the shore at a, uh, in a fishing village showing that, you know, all the damage that's being done to the ecology of the world. Listen, sometimes these subtle scenes are a bit more effective. As I said, this is a very cynical uh, film, very cynical screenplay, very typical of this 19, 1970s attitude that we get, especially in Japanese films. You know, big business is not cleaning up, they're just covering up. The government is not interested in solutions until it's too late, only interested in keeping up appearances. Our hero, you know, Dr. Nishiyama in this case, is a pacifist, of course, who knows the way things, uh, quote, really are. And his pacifism is, is very much shown to be a, uh, an admirable trait. When they're being, he's on the expedition in New Guinea being attacked by the cannibals, he, he screams in very bad English, Don't shoot! They are human beings! Now, supposedly that line was dubbed in later. Uh, it wasn't originally in the uh, release of the film, but that Toho added it later. I don't know. It looks it looks like it was there from the beginning on, on my copy, but this film's been chopped and formed so many times, it's it's like a piece of uh, you know canned meat, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that the problems which were apparently going to destroy the world in the 1970s are the same problems which are going to destroy the world now. Uh, you, know, you hear it all the time from various... Uh, green groups about overpopulation, food shortages, climate change, air pollution, water pollution, ozone layer depletion. So it, it's the same type of stuff that I've been hearing pretty much my whole life, being born in 1980. As long as I've been old enough to, to understand this stuff, we've been hearing about it. Ironically, I'm recording this on Earth Day, so I, I think that was another uh, bit of fitting coincidence for that. Uh, of course, being a Japanese film, the final result is thermonuclear war. Uh, and so that, that's just the, the logical conclusion when you're watching a Japanese film, I guess. One thing I will give the film a lot of credit for is that there actually is a couple instances of there being debate about this. One scene that stands out to me is there's an international committee that Nishiyama is at where there, different delegates are talking about different issues. And a European delegate, it's not clear what country he's from, talks about uh, overpopulation in the third world and how it's putting... Uh, you know, undue burdens on the food supplies. Well, then a delegate from an African nation counters that and says that uh, if you look at the diets of the European and Western nations versus those in Asia and Africa, so that the, the, the grain that is used, the cereal grains that are grown in Africa can feed, you know, this many people, but when it's used to feed chicken or uh, beef, that the amount of nutrition continually drops down and that it's the 
you know, luxurious lifestyles of the West that is leading to the food shortages rather than the uh, you know more, I guess, humble diets of Africa and Asia, which rely more on grain. So I like that it put in a bit of debate there, and that's and that's a legitimate question. You know, what is the best use of your resources? I think everybody can agree that, you know, um, using our resources more efficiently would help with any of these problems. And I like that they made, uh, you know, p- paid it paid it some lip service and, and in a very real way, not just kind of throwing it out there. I mean, it, it's a pretty major plot, well, not plot point, but a pretty major part of that scene is this debate that there's no necessarily one way to fix all these problems. I thought that was a good bit of, of screenwriting. The disaster effects are generally very strong. Uh, floods and explosions are done with Nakano's usual style. They look very good for the era. They fit right in with that mid-70s look. Uh, the highway explosion scene was so popular, it actually became a piece of stock footage that they used several times over, which is amazing when you consider how incredibly specific it is, that you need a jammed-up highway and its overpass and one car to cause an explosion and start a chain reaction of explosions. It actually shows up in Return of Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla 1984. I'm pretty sure that that scene is cut from Godzilla 1985 because I do not remember it being there. But to be fair, I have not gone back and rewatched 1985 to be sure on that. But it is in Return of Godzilla. I know that for uh, for a fact. And it and uh, it's it, it's it's a great scene just watching all these cars just explode down the highway. Uh, the UV burning effect is very simple, sort of a fade effect like we see with the simian aliens in the two Showa Mechagodzilla films. Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples. That's probably the best uh, Toho example. It's very simple, sort of dissolve, but uh, as part of the overall scene, it's very chilling watching the family writhe on the ground and then their skin seemingly burn away. You know, again, cynical, cruel, but well done. A nice effect job uh, with a relatively small budget effect. You know, I talk about this on the Vault of Startling Monster Tales of Terror when we're talking about John Carpenter, is that sometimes effects don't need to be complicated to be effective. And if you can do something in a simple way that looks good, sometimes that's better than doing something in a complicated way. Probably the most well-known signature marquee shot from the film is the convex mirror sky above Tokyo. Uh, It's gone way too fast. It's on screen for maybe a couple of seconds and then it's never even mentioned again, which is kind of a larger issue for the film. But it really looks crazy. Basically, the sky turns this kind of pallid yellow-green and you see the buildings reflected back down on themselves and it, it just, it's, it's unnerving to look at. It's so wrong. You know, that, that's not, uh, you know, we're used to the sky being the sky, not a mirror. And I wish they had done more with that because it's such a memorable image. But like I said, unfortunately, it's here and gone, which is kind of a problem with the film because, you know, these disasters keep coming one right after the other. But basically, once we introduce the next one, the previous one's forgotten about for the most part. So major flooding, bad, major flooding, bad. Okay, an SST crashes and the ozone layer uh, is destroyed. Well, forget about the flooding. Okay, now we got food shortages. Yeah, forget about the ozone layer. There's only so much you can keep up and sustain with that many events happening all at one time and have it make any sense. So eventually it just abandons even trying to do that and just throws wave after wave of crippling disasters at the viewer. Uh, The creature effects, there's not much, but they do vary quite wildly in presentation. The giant slugs are full-scale models, and they're motorized. You can see they've got a little motor in them moving them around. They actually look really good. I think it helps that slugs are not exactly super detailed. Uh, 
nor are they super mobile. So having a you know foot long, 18 inch long slug model worming its way through a pile of garbage, you could make that again simply make it done in a simple effect and have it look effective. I actually really like that. And then it's a good scene too, where Akira rushes in to try and take pictures of it, and they're held back by uh, the military while the flamethrowers are. Or you know, burn the garbage and kill all the slugs. And the question is, why is the government covering this up? And it's actually never addressed. Never addressed other than the government wants to cut stuff up. In New Guinea, we get uh, giant bats. And these are fairly awful uh, puppets on strings. They, you know, It's not even a charming type of bat on a string like a Universal movie. It's just, it's stiff, it's unconvincing. The attack loses a lot of its potency because of these kind of poor effects. Uh, the giant leeches are fine. They're just simple little... Uh, rubber castings, I guess, and they're just stuck on. But they, they look pretty scary. I mean, leeches are pretty disgusting to begin with. And these guys, they look a lot better than the ones from Attack of the Giant Leeches. So they has that going for them. But yeah, they're, they're pretty nasty, but they're really simplistic. There's nothing much to them. And of course, they have to be shot off, which just seems like a bad idea. But, you know, what do I know? Now, the money scene in this movie is the uh, scene of the thermonuclear war and especially the aftermath of that thermonuclear war, the post-nuke scene, if you will. Uh, this is essential. This is essentially what got the film voluntarily banned in the first place, and I will talk about that a bit after. Uh, the scene itself, though, it lives up to the hype. You know, This movie has been something I've been hunting for years and years, and this scene lives up to all the mythology that's built up around it. Essentially, uh, we, we pan in on the earth, and it's just barren, and we see the two survivors who are, they, they look like children, like five, six-year-old kids, but they're covered in lesions, and their skin is all mottled and reddish-brown, and they got giant foreheads and beady eyes and sharp teeth, and they see this little worm crawling on the ground, and one goes to eat it, and then the other one attacks him and beats him to death to eat the worm, and it's it's disturbing. It's strange, it's bizarre, and it, like I said, it lives up to all the hype surrounding that sequence, and you can understand why this precipitated what it did for the, the film in, in the real world. There are some bits, however, that really simply do not work. There's a bit where Mariko and Akira go to a show, uh, like a nightclub stage show, and he starts hallucinating that the dancers have fish heads and they grow giant and shrink. And It's strange, and it, it's like, okay, while you're watching it, but it ultimately doesn't serve any, any real point. There's some mention made that all the stuff in the air in, in the city is making people see strange things and have hallucinations, but it really could have been dropped. Um, it's It seems kind of like a rehash of the fish head scene from Godzilla vs. Smog Monster, and I think Bano might have been going for kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's ultimately just, it's not memorable and it doesn't really work well. Uh, the bits with the teenagers committing suicide, there's two of them. One of them is where they're all dressed up in these bright colors and their faces painted and they sail off into the... Uh, into the ocean with no supplies, and that's actually kind of chilling because they they look so strange, and you know that's a kind of a horrible way to die to to you know die of dehydration and starvation uh, out at sea. The other one is a group of uh, motorcycle youth. And remember, this being the 70s, motorcycles were very big in Japan, especially among the younger uh, younger set. Remember, we're only a couple of years after the development of common Rider, so obviously there was already a motorcycle culture that the pop culture was starting to tap into. 
Well, we see a, a bunch of these guys all to get together, and they all, all the guys all flip coins, and the ones that lose the toss, or win the toss, gets banging how you look at it, mount up on their bikes and drive off to go commit suicide. Now, this starts out pretty neat, because I like the coin toss bit, and then as they're driving away, they all take their helmets and fling them off, in kind of a symbolic gesture of that it, does, it no longer matters. And that I really like. But then the problem comes up that they clearly only had one stump person and one motorcycle that they were willing to drive off this cliff into the water. And so instead of it being a mass group, I forget the name. It's a Korean movie, I think, that opens with a mass teen suicide of a bunch of school children, like teenagers, all jumping in front of a train. I think it's a Korean movie. Whoever knows that, uh, write me in and let me know, because I cannot think of the name of it right now. But instead of something like that, where it's a mass of people jumping on their motorcycles off, it's one guy at a time. It's like a Steven Seagal movie. So it's clearly the same guy on the same bike with a different costume on. Wah! 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 You know, it's like Escalator to Nowhere from The Simpsons. Yeah, it, and it, it just becomes laughable at that point. It starts out pretty decent, but can't deliver on that setup. Um, and then there's a bit with Akira and Mariko, where after Mariko tells Akira that she's pregnant, there's this kind of dance number where she's obviously jumping up and down on a trampoline, and it's like we've stumbled into a different film at this point. Of course, at this stage of the film, every scene is its own little set piece anyway, so this is just another one. I guess one can consider, you know, uh, women dancing on trampolines in silhouette to be another prophecy, prophesized disaster of Nostradamus. I don't know. Uh, it certainly doesn't have the appeal of women jumping on trampolines from the old Comedy Central show, The Man Show, if any of you remember that. Um, so let me address kind of the, the elephant in the room here. How did this film become lost? Well, the scenes of the cannibals in New Guinea and the aforementioned post-nuclear war survivors, they were found to be offensive by different no-nukes groups in Japan, which is not surprising, really, when you look at it. it can, it's a bit harsh, especially when you consider we're, at that point, we're still not even 30 years removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1974. So these groups filed a complaint with the Iron Board which is the Film Board of Japan, and I may be saying that wrong. Uh, these scenes were initially removed manually by projectionists. Toho asked projectionists just to cut out bits of the offending scenes. But Toho eventually went one step further in effort to appease the board. So, that, okay, they pulled the films from the theaters, which was a big choice at that time. From what I can see, the film was making decent box office, so this was a big, big move from Toho to pull the film from theaters when it was making good money. And... So they, they pulled it, and then they edited it down from 114 minutes down to 90 minutes. And they took out a lot of the, the scenes that were offensive. Now, this shortened version ended up being used for the balance of the theatrical run in Japan. And after that, Toho simply just put the film in the vault, you know, so to speak. Decided not to court any more controversy with it, since it had gotten them a lot of negative press in Japan. Now, of course, this being Toho, that did not stop them from doing an international version. Uh, the international version also runs 90 minutes, but it's not the same cut-down 90-minute one that Toho had previously done. This one has the New Guinea cannibals and the post-apocalyptic scene in it. And what they do instead, they take out a lot of the plot-related stuff to focus more on the disaster effects. 
Now, in the 1980s, uh, there was another version that was put together, cut together by American distributor UPA at a whopping 72 minutes. Now, this version is the one that's called Last Days of Planet Earth. It's probably the one most familiar to American audiences. This was released on home video. It made the, the rounds on you know broadcasting cable TV for many years before it eventually also became very obscure and hard to find. Now, I have the uncut subtitled version of the film from the site cultaction.com. That's cultaction.com, no space, no dash, or anything. And they sell a version of WTF Films, a very lovingly restored copy of Prophecies of Nostradamus. I ended up getting the two-disc set, which also contains, I believe, both the international version and Last Days of Planet Earth, along with some other nice special features. Uh, I, I definitely recommend this site for hard-to-find, strange cult movies. I've had a, I had a very good experience ordering some stuff from them, including uh, two more films we may see on future Earth Destruction Directive shows. Like I said, I, I recommend them. They, they were good, good product and good prices on there, so check that one out. Prophecies of Nostradamus is a strange film for sure, but it's definitely worth watching if you can find a copy of it. Uh, besides the notoriety and the controversy which surrounds it, it's probably the craziest disaster movie ever made, an extremely unique part of Toho's output. Now, I'm a disaster movie fan. I love you know, all the American disaster films, all of Irwin Allen stuff, all the crazy stuff from the 70s and the, the very early 80s. And this one has got to be one of the absolute just over-the-top, ridiculous disaster films I've ever seen, even more so than, than some of the later Allen efforts. And, and the thing is, years and years I've been trying to find this movie. Literally two decades since I discovered it uh, when I was in high school, I've been trying to find a copy of it, and I finally got it, and it, it was worth the wait and worth the hunt, and it really lived up to the expectations that I built up in my mind. It's not a great movie by any stretch, you know, there are whole parts of it that don't make a whole lot of sense, but from a maison-sans standpoint of just watching this strangely constructed film, uh, it, it, can be, it can be beautiful at times, it can be ridiculous at times, but it's very memorable and extremely unique, and I recommend it. If you're a fan of, of Toho's science fiction movies or Japanese sci-fi in general, I think you kind of owe it to yourself to, to track down a copy of this at some point and watch it. And if you like regular, even American disaster films, I think it's worth a shot because the disaster effects alone are, are really neat, and they do some good stuff with you know mixing of effects footage and stock footage. Overall, it's it's a good movie. I'm glad. I'm really glad I picked it up, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to sitting down with some of my friends and watching this one again. I think it'll be uh, a lot of fun in a group setting with a case of your favorite beverage. All right, that's all we have for right now. Uh, if you have any questions or comments about Prophecies of Nostradamus, go ahead and send an email in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and we will be back next time, hopefully with not a guidance, but a real episode. So uh, I'm going to sign off and say thanks for listening, everybody, and, and be careful because you never know what is in the Prophecies of Nostradamus.
Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.